Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Christiane Boudreaux learned her son was dead when a reporter showed up at her front door with a link to a tweet announcing that he had been killed in Syria fighting for the Islamic State. It had been more than a year since Damien Clermont, who was 22, surreptitiously left his home in Canada to make his way to a jihadi training camp in Turkey. Boudreaux was unable to help her son, but she was determined that no other mother would suffer the same experience, and she founded a group to help counter extremist propaganda in Canada. And she's helped launch Mothers for Life, a network of mothers from seven European and North American countries whose children have gone to fight with jihadi groups. Conservative estimates have put the numbers of Westerners who have joined militant Islamic groups in the low thousands. Several hundred known to have emigrated, emanated from Belgium and Denmark, thousand from France, at least 150 from the U.S., all of that from the Guardian newspaper. We're going to talk about this on the program today with Christian Boudreaux, who joins us from, I believe it's Calgary. Calgary. Uh, so thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. And we also are going to be talking with Ann Speckard, who is an adjunct uh, associate professor of psychiatry in the School of Medicine and of Security Studies in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. She's a research psychologist, counterterrorism expert. She's interviewed more than 400 terrorists, their family members and close associates. And her latest book is Bride of Isis, One Young Woman's Path into Homegrown Terrorism. Uh, Dr. Speckard, welcome to the program. Hi, Tom. Thank you. Let me tar- start with uh, Christi- hi, Christiane. Yes. Hi, Anne. Are you, are you guys meeting for the first time here? Yes. You- yeah, I've heard of Christiane, and I really admire you, what you're doing. Bravo. Let's Thank start, you. Let me start with Christiane Boudreaux. Um, I'm looking at a picture here. Uh, your son, Damien, I, I expect in his teens here, he's got kind of sideways ball cap. He looks like a typical teenager. Tell, tell, me, about, uh, tell me about Damien. Well, he was a typical teenager. Um, unfortunately, he started to suffer with some depression. He'd been a very happy-go-lucky young boy, very curious, athletic, social, lots of friends but very, very intelligent and struggled in his teen years because he didn't feel he fit in with the rest of the the kids at school. He was much more comfortable having discussions with adults and felt that other youngsters his age couldn't understand what he did and what he could. Unfortunately, his emotional maturity wasn't at a level that he could understand that it would take some time to catch up and where to put all those ideas and all those thoughts and created a path of loneliness, which then included depression. How did he get connected? Did he, at a certain point, convert to Islam, did he? Where did how did he encounter, uh, first of all, Islam and, the, and then the extremist um, ideology? Well, in Calgary here, we're a very multicultural city, so we're exposed to lots of different races, cultures, religions, we're quite open that way. And at school, of course, all the kids go to school together. He attempted suicide a day after his 17th birthday hmm. and spent two months in the hospital recovering, um, getting psychiatric help. When he left, he felt that the fact that he'd survived that attempt, which was a very serious one, we had called family in from France, he thought there was something he was missing, he needed deeper meaning, and started seeking out religion as the answer. And that's when he converted to Islam shortly thereafter. And that was fine for the first three years. Everything was great. He started having social life again. His friends that he was meeting, they were fantastic, very kind, helpful. He started working. So I was very positive 
in some of the choices he was making. It wasn't until three years later when he moved to a different part of the city and he no longer could get transportation as easily to this side of the city that he met new friends and things started to change. What was your first uh, indication? Did he distance himself from you? He would still come and visit the family, but he said he was part of this youth group, and as part of that youth group, he would put their activities first. So I always had to try to schedule way in advance anything that was going on with the family. He would come over for meals, but then his beliefs in religion became much more rigid. So prior to, he would come over, we'd have a bottle of wine, it wasn't a problem for him. He would come for Christmas celebrations because of his younger siblings and still partake. But as his rigidity grew, um, that would stop. So he wouldn't come to the table if there was wine. He wouldn't come for Christmas or birthdays anymore. He would start having discussions about conspiracy theories, about taking on more than one wife, justified killing. And it was very difficult at times to have regular conversations without feeling some frustration. He also became very private again. So phone calls that he would get, he would take outside. Instead of his friends coming in to meet him here, they would pick him up around the corner. So there were quite a few changes. Let me turn to uh, Dr. Speckard here. Um, is, is, from your studies, is this resonating with you? Is this a typical path? Absolutely. Um, what we usually find, if you're living in a non-conflict zone, which Canada would qualify, although we have to remember, sometimes when you live in an inner city or in a violent family, you do live in a conflict zone. But, uh, yeah, it's usually kids that are, or young people, that are somehow off their path and something's hurting inside and then they encounter extremist uh, messaging and the group and the ideology meet some of their needs. So they show them a path to maybe getting off of drugs, uh, maybe they uh, offer them social support, a sense of belonging, uh, identity that is more honoring and gives them a sense of dignity, or maybe even an adventure. And sometimes it's love and romance that they get from the group or the other members in the group. Mm. But it's definitely something in the group, its ideology and the social support that they get from the group is meeting a need. And, and that's what I call the lethal cocktail of terrorism, these four things, the group, its ideology, the social support it offers, and then how those meet the individual vulnerabilities and resonate. And as we go along, I want to talk about uh, you. You base your characters. It's it's a uh, novelization, a composite character in, in the book *Bride of Isis*. But you you base and understand on on Denver teenager Shannon Connolly. I want to talk about her as, right. as we go along. And Shannon Connolly um, was also off her track. I've talked a little bit with her mother, and her mother is uh, less brave than Christiane, and it, it's going out and talking to the media when you're the parent of someone who's joined an extremist group because the first thing is everyone looks at you and wants to blame you. And uh, I definitely picked up that vibe from Shannon Connolly's mother, but we have to give her parents credit. Her dad's the one that turned her in. But um, according to her parents, she was uh, lonely and isolated, and um, I don't have the whole story of why she converted, um, and that was one of the reasons that I fictionalized her story in the book, although there's end notes everywhere that show you exactly where it's um, the truth of her story. And um, But over and over again, we hear these stories of these kids that are isolated, somehow don't fit in, 
maybe something terrible happened to them. I mean, there's an expose in the New York Times about a, a minor, a young girl that's on the West Coast, and she tweets out, why would uh, ISIS be head? And these people are so savvy that they saw her tweet and they answered her. And then they started trying to recruit her into their group. And they don't, you know, at first say, hey, become a terrorist. They said, um, oh, you're a Sunday school teacher. Well, did you know that Islam is the um, completion of Christianity? Can we send you some books on Islam? And this girl responded to them because she was lonely. She was living with her grandparents. She was out in a rural area. And suddenly she's surrounded by people tweeting and Facebooking, and then they offer to Skype with her. They send her gifts. Eventually she converted, and then as she moved along the path, they started proposing to her, would you like to marry somebody in the movement? And maybe you'd like to bring yourself and your younger brother, um, out of, in this case the United States, out of the United States. And these are minors that they were recruiting. So, you know, this group has no shame. It's very willing to work on vulnerable people. And the same thing with Shannon Connolly. She was going on the Internet looking for what are my duties in Islam, and she found Anwar al-Awlaki. Al-Awlaki is an American Yemeni that we droned in 2011, and there's a lot of controversy over droning an American citizen. But he was involved in terrorist plots, and one of the things that he was selling on the internet and still sells, he inspires from beyond the grave, is the idea that all Muslims, according to him, have the duty to go to the battlefield and fight jihad till the end time. And if you can't go to the battlefield, you should fight from at home and launch a stay and act in place attack. So Shannon Connolly became convinced of that and downloaded al-Qaeda manuals that showed her how to uh, engage in guerrilla warfare. She even showed them to the FBI when they came to question her. She said she had been considering doing a VIP attack in Denver. So that's how these people work. Hmm. And um, they get you into their worldview. They meet your needs. And in Shannon's case, she also um, uh, basically got an Internet lover that proposed marriage to her. He was a member of ISIS. He was on the battlefield. And he proposed to her that she should gain the skills to come over and help the fighters and uh, come to Syria and marry him. And, you know... When a young girl or a young man falls in love, they lose a lot of their uh, good reasoning capacities and make decisions that often aren't good for them. Yeah, that's it's just just amazing. You're helping me understand a little bit, and I'm sure Christiane can help me as well to understand, our audience to understand, because I think there's a... Uh, sort of disbelief, you, you know, why would, in the wide world, would anyone want to go? But uh, some of the, what you've been saying is is helping to explain that. Let me turn back to uh, to Christiane Boudreau. Uh, you didn't get a chance to, uh, you didn't even have a, a choice to, you know, turn your son in, if, if that were, were to, you know, to be a, a choice you'd, you might make, because I think as with some families, you were, you were blindsided. Next thing you knew, he's, you, you learn he's over in Syria? Absolutely. Uh, you've got to remember, again, when Damien left, it was in 2012. And at that time, in Canada, we, we'd never really heard anything about this type of phenomenon, nor would anybody consider, without having that understanding and education, uh, consider that your child would pick up and go to a war-torn country overseas to fight. We didn't even realize the terrorist organizations that may be recruiting under our own noses right here in our own country. So it was difficult to conceptualize 
any idea that something like that could happen or would happen. I had concerns. I had concerns he might be reverting back into a depressive state, that he wasn't finding the meaning that he thought he was going to find. He was wearing off. He was still looking for something more. He'd always been somebody who'd seeked some sort of strong purpose for his life, always looked out for the underdog at school. If somebody was being bullied, he'd be the first to stand in their way. I'd have to go to the school and speak with the principal because he would stick up for anybody who's having a tough time. Really looked out for women and children, had a strong sense of purpose that way, and was always looking for a way to fulfill it. And so I think for him, this was exactly what that was. And he responded to it because he was shown videos of atrocities with Bashar al-Assad, torturing women, children, raping them, all the murder, the chaos, and saw us as the Western world sitting back, being selfish, not doing anything to help. These kids are so passionate at that young age. We have a stronger sense of duty. We don't have that sense of maturity still where we can sit back and say, okay, we have to take our time and find other methods. We don't look at tomorrow. If we die, what good are we going to do then? And he was drawn in for that thought. You were able to talk with him on the phone at least, at least once? I was. Actually, when he first went over, I believed he was in Egypt. And I would talk to him every two or three days. I didn't even, at that point, I still hadn't even considered he wasn't where he said he was. Uh, we had regular conversations just about home cooking he missed, adjusting to the climate, just regular everyday conversations. On December 23, 2012, it was our last conversation we had, and he went off the grid. And it had been a month, and I was expressing concern vocally out loud to everybody, saying I haven't heard from him. Everybody said, oh, don't worry, he's probably just studying really hard right now. He'll reach out soon. And that was the same day that our secret intelligence service showed up on my doorstep to explain where they believed he had actually gone. Hmm. That's, that's, that's heartbreaking. Um, and, and so your, your reaction, I'm sure, after grieving and what you, what you would go through, you're, you're, you're determined to not have other mothers go through this, I think. Exactly. I think the hardest part for us is because it was so early onset and the knowledge wasn't out there. There was so much stigma. And even picking up a telephone, trying to find a psychologist to work with the family because of his younger brother, Luke, was really struggling. Um, it was a challenge. They would hang up on me, thought I was crazy, didn't even believe the concept that this could be happening to our family. So it was a very dark place to be very lonely place and scary, not understanding what was happening. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll uh, talk about uh, Mothers for Life. This is a, a new network of mothers from seven European and North American countries whose children have gone to fight jihadi groups. There's an open letter from these mothers uh, counseling youngsters to, uh, who are contemplating joining the jihadi fight to think twice and pleading for their children to come home. Uh, we'll talk about social media. Uh, ISIS seems to be very skilled in social media. President Obama recently convened a, a panel, talked with some uh, Twitter and the like, and is trying to see how the West can counteract that. And it looks like we're a bit behind the curve on, on that. We're talking with Christiane Boudreau, and we're also talking with Dr. Ann Speckard, who's an adjunct associate professor of psychiatry 
in the School of Medicine and of Security Studies in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University and author of uh, Bride of ISIS, One Young Woman's Path to Homegrown Terrorism. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, proudly celebrating its 40th anniversary, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Details at utahhumanities.org. When you're in a band and you go on tour, do you go where the diehard fans are or do you go where the money is? On U2's last tour, they played Los Angeles, but they didn't even stop in San Diego. They went straight to Phoenix. Sometimes we're just a second thought. I'm Kai Rizdahl. Don't take it personally, man. It's not about you. The story next time on Marketplace from APM. Monday night at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. Conservative estimates, I'm quoting the Guardian newspaper, put the numbers of Westerners who've joined militant Islamic groups in the low thousands. Several hundred known to have emanated from Belgium and Denmark, a thousand from France, at least 150 from the U.S. We're talking with the mother of one such young man who, in fact, died in, in Syria fighting. Uh, for the Islamic State, uh, Christian Boudreau. We're also talking with Anne Speckard, who is adjunct associate professor of psychiatry in the School of Medicine and of Security Studies in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. She's a counterterrorism expert, has interviewed uh, more than 400 terrorists, their family members, and close associates. Her latest book is Bride of Isis, One Young Woman's Path into Homegrown Terrorism. Let me turn back to Dr. Speckard here in the first part of this uh, segment. Um, I think one one thing I'm having trouble understanding, and, I, and I'm sure maybe a lot of our audience perhaps will have a, a trouble understanding, if I sort of put myself in, uh, say, Damien's place, um, you're attracted to this ideology, and as a young man you want to uh, protect the vulnerable, and, and, and so you latch on to this, to, to, you know, to this fight. Um, as a young woman, though, I don't know, and I guess I guess there's a disconnect. Um, I'm sure that this romance, this this romantic ideal, would soon dissolve, wouldn't it? If you actually made your way to the Islamic State and went back a couple hundred centuries, a couple hundred years in uh, you know in women's rights and and the like, uh, it seems like a really big disconnect. Well, Tom, uh, I think that we tend to think that women um, are not violent. We have a, a cultural stereotype that women are nurturers, and indeed they are. But um, women harbor a lot of the same feelings about violence, and maybe even stronger ones than men. They're not always the ones to enact violence, but they certainly urge, urge it uh, with their male uh, counterparts and are willing to take part when they think things are wrong. And we know that studies of uh, ethics and values show that uh, Carol Gilligan, for instance, went back and looked at Kohlberg's data on how um, values develop in uh, young girls and young boys. And she found that girls make their value decisions much more on relationships. So imagine if you're Muslim and you're watching what's going on in Syria, especially in the early years, um, when things were more clear, you know, that there were, 
I guess they were terrorist groups, but they haven't even been designated as terrorist groups yet, um, fighting Assad, and that Assad was doing really evil things. So if you're a Muslim girl and you believe this is terribly wrong, you may have the same feelings as a young man. You may not feel that you're going to go over there and become a fighter, but you're going to go over there to be a supporter of the fighters. And sure, you have a romantic ideal. And just like Damien's mother was saying, when you're young, you know, you don't have a family yet, you maybe don't have a job, you don't have all the commitments that you do as an older adult, so your passion is free. And when you see something terribly wrong and you're free to go and try to right that wrong, if you're a good person, you may go and do it. And it's not the first time in history that we've seen this. We saw people go to the Spanish War. Um, you know, we've seen people volunteer for all kinds of wars, uh, legitimately and illegitimately. Hmm. Are are there young people who go and are disillusioned, think, oh, this isn't what I signed up for, and then come back? Does that happen? Certainly. Um, we had um, a case, uh, a very sad case, in fact. I think his name was Eric Haroon, um, a young Marine that... Um, had gotten a traumatic brain injury in in California, I believe. He was a Marine, and he hurt himself, not in combat, and he was discharged honorably, but with an injury, a traumatic brain injury. And he converted to Islam. He was a little bit lost in his life because his career was now off track. And he heard about what was going on in Syria and thought, well, I'm trained. I'll go and fight. I mean, this is definitely wrong. And I think most people in the world feel that what Assad is doing is wrong and has been wrong. So he went to fight with um, the Free Syrian Army. And when he got there, he said, I'm an American. Make sure you don't uh, introduce me to any al-Qaeda types because they probably want to kill me. And on and on. So he fought with the Free Syrian Army. And at one point, he was in a battle where there was a lot of confusion. The people that he was fighting with were killed. He ran back to a jeep. And mistakenly, in the fog of battle, uh, jumped into an al-Nusra jeep. When he got back to their camp, he said, oh, no, no, I'm with the Free Syrian Army. And they said, brother, it's a fight against Assad. It doesn't matter who you're fighting with, fight with us. So he did. And he put it up on social media. And um, later he left. He was tired. He went to the um, American consulate in Turkey didn't have his passport anymore, and he told them who he'd been fighting with, and he thought he'd give them the inside information. He didn't really think to himself that al-Nusra at that point had been designated as a terrorist group, and uh, he was arrested as soon as he entered American soil, and he was tried. He committed suicide in prison. Hmm. Uh, tragic. Uh, Christian tragic. Christian Boudreaux, I wonder, uh, similar point, um, young people perhaps who get caught up, get radicalized, go over, decide they don't want to do that. I think there are some difficulties if they if they want to come back. In the earlier days, I think it was a little bit easier to come back. It was much more free-flowing across the border. Again, the confusion was there. There wasn't any really established terrorist groups, per se. Everybody seemed to be fighting all the factions or fighting together against Assad. Now, today, the way it's changed the dynamics with ISIS being so strong and developing the, the caliphate, what we're finding is if a young person does want to leave, they're considered a spy and executed before they can even escape. So, again, the dynamics have changed quite, quite a bit. 
and being able to, to leave there and the traumas and atrocities that they've seen, the post-traumatic stress that they're going to experience even if they do come out, and then how they're handled when they get in their respective countries, it all adds to the complexities of it. Uh, tell me about, I promise we talk about this, uh, uh, tell me about uh, the, the group that you uh, you, you helped to, to found. Uh, um. Well, the first group that I, I founded here in Canada was High Canada Family Support. And what we do is provide support to families that have concerns that a loved one may be radicalized um, and want help, either A, just doing an analysis to see if that's indeed the case, and to help intervene and, and turn their lives around and help keep them here and get on a straight straighter path. Obviously, redirect them into more positive activities that will help them feel as if they're doing something with purpose. And that's what we do. We work through their social circles, families and such. But there are also other families. What we're finding is by the time they turn to us, too late, their loved one's already traveled and they require emotional support trying to communicate with that loved one. It's very difficult having those conversations with them without getting over-emotional, and that's what we try to do is support them in those areas as well. So that turned into Mothers for Life on an international level so that we could all bond together, and a lot of us have lost our loved ones already or still have loved ones over there. And what we do is we work to support each other with our own organizations in each respective country and look at solutions and promote proactive types of solutions, messaging either on social media or intervening, um, trying to get the word out there to policymakers of what we can do to try to slow down this flow and change what we're doing in our communities and families to support them before the youth get there, the education, awareness, and all those other aspects as well. What do, what do you most, uh, I want to start with government, what, what do you most want or need from government? Well, I think the biggest part of it is resources. These people here in these organizations, specifically ISIS, have deep, deep pockets. They have a lot of money. They have the ability to have people sit on the Internet for 24-7 grooming these young people who are looking for those connections. Technology is a superficial reality. We don't have the human contact that we used to in the early days. It's, it's kind of cut us off from one another. So in order to develop programs so that we are creating those mentorships, those human connections that are so important and vital for our youth early on and the education programs, getting them in our schools. We need governmental support. We need policy to help us do that. As well, a lot of the laws that are, especially in Canada, are very rigid on the back end. The arrest, they're throwing them in jail without counseling, without any support, without any family support. And they're eventually going to come out even more marginalized, oppressed, upset, frustrated, whatever the case may be. And that's just going to create more problems. So we have to help educate our governments in better ways to balance those effects out. You can't just throw them in jail. We have to have early onset programs so that our kids are getting the resources and the counseling they need, supports. They need human contact instead of relying on the computer for their information. What if you... uh well, as a parent, what if you suspect that your uh, child has become radicalized, might flee to the battlefield? Do you turn them in? What do you do? Well, there are a lot of cases, if it's early onset and the transformation is just beginning, that we, we have intervened. 
We do communicate with the family. We do bring people in to try to help that youth redirect their energies. And we have been successful in a lot of cases. Uh, you can't just turn around and, and not um, and think that, I guess, everything is safe. It's like a cancer. You have to keep checking in, keep checking in to make sure they don't get frustrated and revert again. So it's, it takes a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of caring and nurturing. Um, there are other cases if it's much further onset, they're ready to leave. In those cases, you have sometimes no choice but to turn them in to try to stop them. At least if they're in prison, they're not going to die, and then try to find other programming and resources to continue working with that family and that youth. Let me turn back to uh, Dr. Speckard. Uh, so Shannon Conley's father turned her into the FBI. That, that, that of course, is a terrible choice. You're, you know, uh, teenagers going to be arrested and uh, perhaps imprisoned, uh, or they're going to go and maybe die on the on the battlefield. But obviously, that's that's the better choice if if it comes to it. What would you suggest? Well, Tom. Um... It is a horrible choice, and this has been something that I've been asking governments to do for years. Um, I lived in Europe for 13 years. My husband's a U.S. ambassador, so we were um, out of the country at a time when all of this was heating up in Europe way before we saw it in the States and um, in Canada, where kids were going off mostly to Afghanistan and Pakistan, and they were joining al-Qaeda. But um, one of the things that I told the Home Office is you need – you're doing 24-7 – uh, surveillance on people that you think might be involved in terrorism and might go off to uh, train in al-Qaeda or have trained, but you can't prove it, why don't you introduce them to an imam and a psychologist that maybe could talk them out of it? Why don't you have hotline? And Home Office did start to do some of that stuff. And the same thing for the state. I mean, why does a parent have to face that terrible decision? Why aren't there um, government and nonprofit-funded organizations where, you know, it's usually the families that realize that their loved one is changing quite a bit and starting to um, spot, spot out um, things that sound like ISIS and extremism. If they could call someone and say, you know, would you be willing to come and do an intervention with us or talk to my loved one or give us some insights of what we might be able to do or, you know, are, are we right to be taking this seriously? Because it's not only Shannon Connolly's uh, father that turned her in, this uh, Chicolo, the Boston police officer, his son was mentally ill. And he alerted the FBI as well. And in that case, they organized a sting operation, and the kid is going to go to prison. So, you know, how would you feel as a parent if you just desperately needed help for your kid and there's no help? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a really awful thing. And, you know, we have to find ways to recognize that kids are going off their track and get them community mental health, but get it focused on fighting the brand of extremism that's extremely seductive right now. And frankly, that's winning. Yeah, I wonder if you'd follow up with that. Frankly, it's winning, especially on social media. It's um, the, the countermeasures. If I don't know if there are any, but you, you had this well, example earlier yeah, in the program. Yeah, the, the, the countermeasures are FBI, and the FBI director has said it's like a needle in a haystack, because imagine you're FBI, and nowadays they have um, guys and women that are on the Internet uh, 
watching who's endorsing ISIS, endorsing al-Qaeda, and it is possible to figure out who's the most vulnerable of those. Then they go and start to watch them, you know, do interviews around them, uh, create surveillance around them. But if you're law enforcement, your choices are limited. You can go and talk to the person like they did with Shannon Connolly. They talked to her nine times. That tells me that the FBI is very ineffective in reaching someone in a way that's meaningful to them. Shannon Connolly just said to them, you know, law enforcement is one of my targets. And, uh, you know, they didn't make any good relationship with her that made her think again. Where if you had said, sent in a mom or a psychologist, maybe they would have been able to find out what is the vulnerability that this extremist message is reaching. And um, so the choices of law enforcement are to go and talk to you, set you up for a sting operation. How would you feel if you were a parent and uh, your child was set up for a sting? I mean, that's actually one of the things that I say in the lethal cocktail of terrorism, social support is very important. So if an older FBI guy that's pretending to be al-Qaeda or ISIS comes and says to you, you know, I saw what you're writing on Facebook and Twitter. You know, you're saying that you're willing to go as a suicide bomber. Really? Well, I can equip you. Are you interested? What would your target be? I mean, hasn't that person offered social support then? And you know, to a vulnerable person that's lonely and wants to make something of himself, even though he's very deluded about that this is the way to make something of himself. And uh, that's very, very troubling. Mm. And I just think that there's better alternatives, and they exist in groups like what Christiana is running, groups that need funding, need resources, to be ready and willing to meet with people that, haven't made their full decisions yet, haven't figured out how to link to the terrorist groups and redirect them. And usually these are people of passion and people that have real needs to go after those passions. I mean, like she was saying about her own son, he he was a passionate person that was looking to serving good. He got uh, put on a track where, you know, it's debatable whether he was serving good or not, but he certainly lost his own life doing it. Let's take another break, come back, we'll uh, talk about the, the, there are thousands of uh, young people, uh, I guess older people too, but uh, a lot of them younger people, who uh, Westerners, who uh, are joining militant Islamic groups, uh, especially ISIS. And uh, we're talking with Christiane Boudreau, who lost her son in, in this uh, fight, and uh, Anne Speckard, who is a, a ju- adjunct associate professor of psychiatry in the School of Medicine and of Security Studies in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Her latest book is Bride of Isis, One Young Woman's Path into Homegrown Terrorism. When we come back, uh, I want to hear from Christiane Baudreau about um, an open letter. It's an open letter to our sons and daughters from this group, Mothers for Life, and more following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Orchestra of Southern Utah, presenting the 19th Annual Fall Recital Series, Tuesdays, in September, including the 20th Century Favorites, directed by Suzanne Tegland, on September 8th at 7.30 p.m. in the Heritage Center Theater. Information at myosu.org. This is State of the Arts. Every home should have a work of original art, according to Alice Merrill Horn, an early Utah legislator who ran for office in 1898 on a platform of advancing the arts. 
Representative Horn wrote legislation that organized the nation's first state arts council, established a statewide art competition, and appropriated state funds for a collection of work by Utah artists that continues to this day. She encouraged schoolchildren from around the state to contribute nickels and dimes from their milk money to buy art for public places such as schools and libraries. That early investment has paid off. Utah is now home to more than 9,000 professional artists, and Utah's art galleries are a $159 million industry. State of the Arts is brought to you by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts in Logan, Utah, with a cooperative gallery featuring the work of more than 30 participating artists. Details at cachearts.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Conservative, conservative estimates put the numbers of Westerners who've joined militant Islamic groups in the low thousands. And we're talking with the mother of one such young man uh, who, in fact, died over in Syria, Christian Boudreau, who's joining us from Calgary in uh, Canada, and Anne Speckard, who is a counterterrorism expert and associated with Georgetown University and uh, uh, her latest book is Bride of Isis, One Young Woman's Path into Homegrown Terrorism. We'll be talking about to trying to understand why young people would be attracted to uh, radical philosophy and actually uproot their lives and in, in some cases lose their lives in, in this fight. Uh, we're also talking about countermeasures. How do we, how do we counteract this? One group that's, uh, that's, that's doing this, trying to counteract uh, this radicalization is Mothers for Life. It's a network of mothers from seven European and North American countries whose children have gone to fight with jihadi groups. Christian Boudreau is a founder of the group. Uh, Christian Boudreau, I wonder if you'd uh, talk about this this open letter, open letter to our sons and daughters. It was a way for us, I guess, to put out our hearts and use the same messaging. So basically, these youngsters are being drawn into these terrorist organizations, specifically ISIS at the moment, using the Quran and Islam as justification and, and statements that are being made. And what we're doing is using the same book, the Quran, and quotes from there with the, the actual opposite messaging, with statements saying that heaven is found at the foot of the mother, which is what the Quran is stating. You're also supposed to have the blessings of your parents before you go off on jihad. You're supposed to take care of your family first. They're foremost in Islam. And so what we're trying to do is bring back education of true Islam and challenge what they're being told and the messaging that they're getting and using this open letter in areas and families where they're suspecting that potentially their youth may be contemplating something or going down that path, as well as using it in social media campaigns to try to reach as many as we can to challenge those exact beliefs. Dr. Speckard, I wonder what you think of, of this. Uh, this is, this is tri- part of this is uh, there are you know, many Muslims who vehemently disagree with, with uh, what ISIS and other groups are, are doing. It's, it's in a way a, b- a battle for interpretation of, of Islam. The mothers have an open letter here. Uh, what do you think? I think it's effective for some. Uh, but some get so brainwashed into believing uh, Salafi, militant, jihadi point of view that they would say, oh, you just are interpreting things wrongly. Because there have been fatwas made that say, 
your duty to jihad is above your family. Your duty to jihad allows you to not have to ask your parents' permission. I mean, there are girls that um, technically the guy is supposed to propose to the father and make the marriage contract with the father, but they get someone to stand in. And that's exactly what happened with Shannon Connolly as well. Um, her ISIS fighter over Skype proposed to her father. And Shannon, unbelievably, thought her father would be delighted and say yes. Of course, he was not delighted and uh, didn't say yes, but that says something about her and her state of mind, doesn't it? Mm. And um, But they have their workarounds. So I definitely believe we should be fighting them with the ideology and saying, no, you've got Islam wrong. And that's something we did in the detainee uh, uh, rehabilitation program in Iraq. I, I helped design that for 20,000 detainees. But that's not the only thing. You also have to find what are the psychological hooks. Why do they want to believe this? Why is violence and extremism resonating to them? What need is it meeting? What need does the group meet and its social support? Because you want to break that apart. And certainly you can fight it on an ideological level, but that's not the only way. And it's not the only thing that motivates people into extremism. Hmm. I wonder, Dr. Speckard, I want to talk about the, the White House's initiative. Um, it, it, it attempted to enlist social media companies in a messaging war against uh, ISIS. Um, Twitter, Facebook, Google were a bit skeptical because they didn't want to get accused of being too cozy with government. I, I wonder if, you know, if that's even a possible avenue, you know, having, having the companies like that um, regulate traffic or... Or is that genie just out of the bottle and uh, it has to be individual to individual? Well, we've had a lot of argument for years now of can government even do this? And is it correct for government to do? And does this all have to come from Muslims? I believe it can come from anyone um, because you're talking to people that have real needs and you can address their needs if you happen to know Islam really well, then you can throw the scriptures in. And if your government or government-sponsored, and in the States, our government is not supposed to be um, arguing religion, but you can say, how do you justify this verse, given that this other verse, um, you know, says something completely different or tells you that violence isn't allowed? And you have to be really careful if it is state-sponsored and known to be state-sponsored, that may um, delegitimize it to a certain extent. But if it's done well, it will uh, garner attention. And, you know, there's so many things that we can do that we're not doing. We should have every eighth-grade civics course um, should study a unit on extremism, and not just militant jihadi extremism, but, you know, far-right extremism, Nazi extremism, and how kids get caught up in these ideologies and to delegitimize them before they're even introduced to them or to introduce them the first time at the same time as delegitimizing it so that it's not something that they can easily believe, but keeping in mind that they believe it for emotional reasons, not just for rational reasons. And then we have to think about what are those emotional needs? Why are our kids not having their needs met? Why are the mental health needs of kids you know, we tend to throw a lot of medications at kids and tell them that their brains aren't functioning correctly and then being surprised when they turn to drugs or turn to extremist ideologies, where really we need to look at what is it in their lives that isn't working. 
that's making them depressed, that's making them feel that they don't belong to the social contract. And these things are things that we can address. I mean, I was just hearing in Minneapolis, the unemployment is around 3%, but in the Somali community where we had the most extremism, the unemployment rate is 20%. Mm, you know, that's yes. something that can be addressed. Yeah. Uh, Christiane Boudreau, I wonder what you think, as, especially about the social media. Uh, the, the ISIS seems to be quite effective in reaching vulnerable young people there. Uh, how best to counteract that message on social media? Well, I agree a lot with Dr. Specker completely, actually, with regards to all the needs that we have to meet. And part of that, that's exactly what they're doing. We don't have the forces and the resources right now, especially with nonprofit groups. We're not being funded. Uh, we're doing this all on our own volunteer time. And we still have to earn a living and, and feed our families. But we could be out there seeking out the youth that are vulnerable and trying to find out those needs and intervene from that standpoint rather than letting these other organizations jump in. We also have uh, Extreme Dialogue. It's an educational program that I worked on that is meant for schools and youth groups to challenge the critical thinking through emotion through youth for all extremist groups and why kids are going that way and how easily it is to be pulled in. If we can get that out there, more and more and get the question coming in to, I guess, solid adults rather than to these groups, finding those safe environments where they can ask those questions, then it would help us alert everybody to who needs to help before they even go down that path. We have to start using the same tools because that's obviously the direction our kids are going in, and we have to start using them effectively to reach out to meet those needs. Just about a minute left in the program. I want to give each of you a chance to, um, you know, give me a contact point where people can learn more about your work. First, uh, with uh, Dr. Speckard, where can people go? Well, I've got a website. It's uh, Anne with E Speckard S P E C K H A R D dot com. All my books are on Amazon, and I've written quite a bit on terrorism, talking to terrorists, undercover jihadi, devices, and all my papers are on the web. So. I'm easily found. Okay, great. And we'll put that on our website as well. And uh, Christian Boudreau, where, where can people go? They can find me at hyattcanada.webs.com or at www.girds.org. And both those organizations, there's uh, web forms there for email. There's also documentation on Hyatt Canada, how working with uh, social circles and reaching out to youth and redirecting them. There's information with regards to that all documented on that site. Uh, and by the way, uh, uh, GERDS is the German Institute on Radicalization and Deradicalization Studies, so that's a very interesting site. Uh, well, thank you uh, to you both. We've been uh, talking with uh, Christian Boudreau um, and with Anne Speckard, and uh, appreciate uh, you both taking time to be with us today. Very nice thank talking you. with you, Tom. Thank you. And I uh, hope you'll join uh, me tomorrow uh, for the program. Um, in Cache Valley, I think in other areas in Utah, we've been uh, just inundated with uh, smoke from somewhat distant wildfires. And some people have had some trouble. So we're going to talk with Dr. Jeffrey Benyon, um, who's an allergist in uh, Cache Valley, about what we can do. And then that's the first segment. Then the, the, the majority of the program, we're going to talk uh, on a new book, The Ecological Importance of Mixed Severity Fires. We'll talk about uh, wildfires and uh, related uh, topics. That's tomorrow on the program. Hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening today. 
Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. I've long been intrigued by ringtailed cats. I wasn't quite sure where they fit in the grand scheme of things until I did some research while working in Zion National Park, where they were known to vandalize building contents and other mischievous endeavors. These mystery cats are mostly nocturnal, highly secretive, very bright, and full of tricks and athletic feats that place them in an elite category. I was intent on seeing one, but knew my chances were slight. On a mid-morning hike into Zion's hidden canyon, I was startled by something not far ahead, scrambling up giant boulders. To my amazement, there they were, two ringtails hightailing it in broad daylight, my first and possibly last sighting of these amazing beings. The name ringtail comes from the seven or eight black rings on the animal's tail. Although they are not related to cats, people have referred to them as miner's cat, civic cat, and cockmissile, an Aztec term meaning half-mountain lion. Along with raccoons and coatamundis, ringtails are members of the Procyonidae raccoon family. The scientific name Basariscus astutsis comes from basar, fox, isk, little, and astute, cunning. If one were to design an animal to climb along ledges and up vertical cliffs, the ringtail might be it. Their large tail provides balance for narrow ledges and limbs, even allowing them to reverse directions by doing a cartwheel. They can rotate their hind feet 180 degrees to quickly climb back down cliffs or trees as well as cacti. Furthermore, ringtails can ascend narrow passages by stimming, that is, pressing all feet on one wall and their back against the other, and wider cracks or openings by ricocheting between the walls. A ringtail's total length is somewhere between 24 and 30 inches. They weigh 2 pounds or so. Vocalizations include squeaks, metallic chirps, whimpers, chitters, chucking, hisses, grunts, growls, and howls. They have a seasonal diet with plants and insects, the favorite fall food. Mammals and birds more common in the winter, and insects dominate summer. Preferred mammals include mice, wood rats, squirrels, and rabbits. Ringtails also feed on nectar from agaves. Great horned owls are their major predator, along with coyotes, raccoons, and bobcats. Ringtails inhabit rough, rocky habitat, usually not too far from water, although they can subsist without free water if their diet consists of high-protein prey or fruits and insects. In addition, they occur in semi-arid landscapes such as pinyon juniper, pygmy forests, and oak woodlands. Ringtails den in tree hollows, rock crevices, other animals abandon burrows or even abandon buildings. Except in bad weather, they move frequently, rarely spending more than three nights in one den. Mating occurs between February and May, with one to four hairless young born in May or June. They are weaned by fall and can mate near the end of their second year. Ringtails range across the southwestern U.S. and most of Mexico, with outliers in northern California, Nebraska, Missouri, and extreme southwest Wyoming. The genus Basariscus consists of only one other species which lives in Central America. The ringtail became the state mammal of Arizona in 1986. Long live the ringtail, non-cat. This is Jack Green for Wild About Utah. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. For more than 30 years, working to preserve the wilderness at the heart of the Colorado Plateau. More about protecting Utah's wilderness heritage at suwa.org. (laughs) 
Did you know that looking at scenes from nature can make you feel less impulsive? Researchers at USU found that people who viewed natural scenes made better decisions. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at ceh.s.usu.edu.